Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. During a week highlighting a return of droughts in Europe and fresh food shortages in the UK, we discuss how sustainable investments may be the crucial opportunities that could deliver in the future. With Sarah Gresty, Head of Investing, Shaquille Aslam, Responsible Investment Analyst, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. Welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. This week I'm joined as normal by Will, but also pleased to have Shaquille, a Responsible Investment Analyst in our team, to join us for a discussion on the latest from the world of investors with a particular focus on sustainable investing. So Will, as usual, if we could start with you. Stock and bond markets continue to be unusually volatile. Is there anything helpful that you can tell us about the week so far? Sarah, I don't know about helpful, but I can try and tell you what's what I think is going on or what we think is going on. It's still pretty messy out there, like you say. The main story continues to be inflation. The question of is it really beaten yet? And therefore, are we going to see as people hope, uh, many investors hope, central bankers kind of rest on their laurels a little bit rather than continuing to raise interest rates so sharply. Now, a few weeks ago, many investors thought they'd spied the peak in the US kind of interest rate rising cycle, raising cycle. Um, However, that has since proved to be a bit of a mirage, unfortunately. And the quite amazing thing really is that the US economy seems to have simply crashed through this giant brick wall of interest rates hastily constructed by the Federal Reserve, the US Central Bank last year. The analogy doesn't quite work in truth, but uh, it'll do keep for going, the moment. Yeah, yeah, I'll try. Yeah, no, none of my analogies already work, but it's as close as I can get to it. But the basic point is that so far, the world's most important capitalist economy, the US, has certainly slowed from the breakneck pace with which it entered 2022. However, some of the more recent data might argue if anything, that there'd been a slight reacceleration into the end of last year and the beginning of this one. That's not so true elsewhere in truth. So the UK, for example. However, it's really the US that matters for the world's investors. That's where the drumbeat for the world stock and bond market comes from. Now, I mean, just to finish off, I mean, it may just be that we have to wait a little more for the effects of interest rate rises to show up, lags in the system, as they say. It can take quite a while for all of us uh, individuals to both feel and act Uh, upon those higher interest rates. And if theory is right, only once these kind of more restrictive policy and other rates have dulled our appetites and our activities will inflationary pressures more durably subside. However, US central bankers and others around the world, they'll continue to worry about the more inflation is allowed to stick around, the more we risk it becoming embedded in our collective expectations, the more it then becomes not just a passing threat, but something much more troubling. Therefore, more interest rates, more market turbulence, and, and more chance, some would argue, of a so-called hard landing or a sort of tougher tougher recession. This is a real tightrope walk that these policymakers are on, attempted with giant crosswinds from really unpredictable stuff like China, uh, China's so far kind of miraculously smooth reopening and the warmest winter in decades in the Northern Hemisphere. So the point here for me, as usual, is that strong views should be kept to the pub and out (laughs) of your investment positioning to whatever extent is possible. Excellent. Thank you, Will. Helpful. So Shaquille, let's bring you in here. As we all know, Will's regular line is basically get invested, stay invested. But in a way, you and the team are enabling investors to do a little bit more than just grow their savings. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. So I think first, we should define what sustainable investing actually is. So the serious way of putting it is 
Sustainable investing refers to specific investment approaches that aim to generate long-term financial returns as, as you do with any other investment, but also while seeking to advance sustainable solutions and outcomes. Basically, you're investing with a purpose as well as looking to make a bit of money. You're looking to do some good in the world. That's the way I see it. And it involves, it's a process of incorporating environmental, social and governance factors, ESG factors into investment decisions. And it gives people, investors, the opportunity to invest in companies, organizations and funds that they believe in and so that they can get exposure to different areas, have impact across various sectors such as uh, renewable energy and climate change to health, safety, community development. And depends a lot on um, an individual's like values and personal priorities as well. For example, in the early stages of SRI, socially responsible investing, it involved negatively screening companies and industries outside out of the portfolio. And that included, you know, oil and gas, tobacco, pornography, gambling, any one of these. But in recent years, investors have had more of an inkling to use positive screening, which is basically investing in the sectors that I mentioned earlier and renewable energy and climate change companies that are basically doing good and having a positive impact on the world. And I should mention that it's gained a lot of traction in the last few years. More and more investors are putting their money into uh, sustainability, ESG, um, to help meet their financial objectives. In fact, according to one Bloomberg study, it's now reached $37.8 trillion in assets under management, AUM, at the end of last year, 2022. And in that same study, they also predicted that global ESG assets are on track to exceed $53 trillion by 2025. So yeah, almost double. So you can you can tell that it is really growing. But I must state that although there's no guarantee that sustainable investments will produce returns similar to those which don't consider these factors, they're for a different purpose and there's no guarantee that they'll perform the same as well. So I should mention that. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I love the I love the way they went from negative to positive. I'm a positive person, so that's a <laughs> nice way of looking at it as well. So Ian Elwood talks to us a lot about the engagement story. I wonder if from your experiences, you could share a little bit around engagement and maybe give us an example. Yeah, so voting and engagement are two big pieces of what we do here in responsible investment. So I'll start off with talking about our stewardship provider, Hermes EOS. They engage with institutional investors all around the world to encourage them to be more active owners of their assets. And that's through dialogue with companies on their ESG issues, sustainability issues, you know, net zero transition reports, things like that. So we partner with them to engage the dialogue on our client's behalf with their portfolio holdings. It's noted that EOS advised on its client's liquid equity and corporate bond assets of approximately 1.34 trillion as of 31st December 2022, end of last year, which is a, is a huge amount. It shows the scale of their reach and engagement. And we recognize that we don't have the scale of resource in-house, so therefore we employ them to work with us on this. We're involved in setting those expectations for engagement with EOS in a variety of ways, such as feedback on their engagement priority areas, processes as part of their annual refresh of their engagement plans. So we have quarterly meetings where we meet with them regularly and speak about issues, engagement issues. We think they're very well placed to help us with this, and it's for three main reasons. So it means we have significant leverage to enact positive change when it comes to a company's shareholder meeting, if it's to support a net zero transition plan or anything like that. So that's number one. And number two is client focus. EOS pulls the priorities of like-minded investors 
And through consultation and feedback, it helps them determine the priorities of their engagement plan for the coming year. So, for example, after COP15, they have a bigger priority on biodiversity. And number three is tailored engagement. So they provide specific engagement strategies for each company informed by their research and understanding across a variety of sectors and themes. So I've said a lot there, but I'll now move on to the engagement example of COP15 I was speaking about. They were actually involved in that. They played an important role in the discussions around the Global Biodiversity Framework, GBF, which aims to address biodiversity loss, restoring ecosystems and protecting indigenous rights. Their engagement specialists emphasised that the framework needs to be more ambitious in order to stop and reverse biodiversity loss in this decade. There's a growing recognition within the financial sector that biodiversity loss poses a significant and systemic risk to the global economy. And given the fact that the financial sector will need to contribute to delivering the the GBF, the Global Biodiversity Framework, it's really important that a plan is set, that targets are set, and that's what EOS suggested. They wanted there to be actionable targets within the framework, and they stressed the need of requiring public and private financial inflows to align with the goals and the targets of the GBF. And the last thing that they asked for was of governments to create an enabling regulatory environment so that financial and private sectors can address biodiversity-related risks and opportunities. And it seems like they've done a great job because in the end, the proposal received support from the EU on behalf of 27 member states. So it's just one of the, the many good stories that they're involved in, really. And I, I could talk to you about a number more, but I think this one was, was probably the most relevant. Yeah, it's really interesting, Jacqueline. Well, thank you for bringing that example to life for us. Um, We'll maybe move back to you. So Shaquille's talked about all the great stuff that the private sector can do here, but we also know that governments have a huge role. So a good example is some of the measures within this recently enacted US legislation, the Inflation Reduction Act. Some are calling aspects of this a new era of protectionism. Is there another way to view this? Well, look, Sarah, I think it's interesting. I mean, this is part of a sort of package of quite large legislative moves from President Biden's sort of first term. And within that administration, there's a guy called Brian Deese, who's uh, who's doing the rounds at the moment, actually, on sort of various sort of podcasts and media channels. It's a kind of series. He's finished his job in the national, I think it's called uh, the Economic Council, which is one of the kind of key positions. And he's had He's been operating some of the most important policy levers in that Biden administration. I would really kind of recommend having a listen to him, actually. The Odd Lots uh, guys had him on, as did David Roberts, if you're looking for a slightly wonkier version. He's basically describing how we're seeing the return of something called, uh, well, very muscular industrial policy after a few decades in the woods. And I'll try and explain what I mean. The interesting thing is, I think that this is where what can be sometimes a pretty annoying debate to follow actually meets reality. Essentially, and as usual, I'm going to oversimplify, cut corners and so on in the interest of us not being here locked in this room until June. (laughs) However, you you will know that much of the last few centuries of kind of policymaking can be seen as a battle between two extremes. Like on the one hand, you have the kind of libertarian free market ideal, you know, like Hayek, Friedman, so on. The market knows best, basically. Keep the size of government very small and contained and let market prices, the all-knowing invisible hand, a much misused expression as it goes, initiated by one of Shaquille's fellow countrymen. But knowing or the all-knowing invisible hand, use that to allocate resources, workers and so on to the right places. Now, the sharp changes in policy direction under Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan 
they were very much guided by these principles, famously so. Former Prime Minister Truss and team were also, you know, some of the latest kind of, you know, quite extreme exponents of this view. Now, on the other side, you have those that will argue that actually market prices don't care about a lot of the things that we really care about. So Shaquille talked about a lot of them, really, to be honest. You know, you think about the environment, certain aspects of health, well-being, some security concerns and, you know, aspects of overall resilience. Now, I would point out that the extremes of this ideal have been proved blind and often murderous alleys. You could think of the reign of Mao as one of the most painful examples. However, I'll get to the point eventually, I promise you. But while free markets have been in the ascendancy for much of the period since the 1980s, the last few years have seen the returning interest in the idea of kind of sinning a little with focused industrial policy. So government-directed investment and effort in specific areas with certain ends in mind, even the selection of certain winning areas and a focus on domestic production within them. So you can sort of dress it up as protectionism my way. There is, I think, a better understanding of how public government-led investment, if done the right way, far from crowding out the private sector and sort of just getting a a less efficient actor into important places, it can actually crowd it in. So it can be complementary sometimes and sometimes totally necessary. There are key bits of research and development, for instance, risk-taking, that just don't happen without that role of government. So China has potentially had a role in changing the debate in much of the developed world, for good or for ill. Chinese authorities have selected key global industries and technologies and essentially said that by hook or by crook, we're going to dominate these areas in the future. Now, that has forced a change in calculation from many developed world economies, a kind of if you can't beat them, join them kind of thing. Maybe the extraordinary policy moves of the pandemic, unprecedented as much of it was, have also helped change things a bit. The long short is that US policymakers have managed to kind of use the bipartisan fear of China's ascendancy in the US to get really moving on climate and clean energy tech. And what I think could be, you know, what many much more knowledgeable people think as well, uh, you know, a really game changing way in particular with with aspects of the disinflation Reduction Act. I'm sorry, it's a really long-winded story, but it's really important. And I think I really think this is the story of the moment in many ways that people aren't talking enough about this big change in kind of policy direction and what it might mean for the future. Excellent. Well, thank you, Will, for talking to us about it. It is interesting. Maybe the next thing I want to talk about is moving on to productivity. I know another favourite topic of yours and also a big debate of the moment around how to reignite it. Any thoughts there? Well, this is linked. You'll be happy to know. I know it's it's not just random. So, uh, yes, absolutely correct. And I think there are loads of potentially interesting angles here in truth. One of them is about this idea of a kind of missing cog in the productivity engine. Did we misunderstand what drove the Second World War, you know, the post-Second World War productivity surge? The US industrial labs, even the role of companies like ICI in the UK and you the older amongst us will recognize that name, the younger won't even know what I'm talking about. But could this be the time to rediscover that that trick? I would highly recommend Mariana Mazzucato is one of the authors on this subject, I think very interesting. You don't have to agree, but it's certainly interesting to have a view. However, the other area surrounds the role of ever cheaper energy input. You can go to Our World in Data, the website, and look at how the cost of solar in particular has evolved this last decade. Also, battery technology, which is really you know the key to unlocking a lot of these advances in renewable energy technology. For the first time, really, since the advent of oil, 
humanity might be on the cusp of a new source of cheaper, more plentiful, and, and vitally in the context of uh, what Shaquille has been saying, vitally in the, con- in the context of this conversation, cleaner energy. And that could be one of the things that simply loosens an important constraint on productivity growth, if you think about it. Now, the important point in amongst all of this is that you're seeing, and again, Shaquille alluded to this, you know, you're seeing surging investment in clean energy tech in the last couple of years in particular, in the context of that sharp change of policy direction, philosophy from the US. I think this could be vital. The counter argument to those worrying about protectionism, and I'm really parroting the kind of US administration line here, is that actually protectionism matters when there is an adequate supply of a commodity or a service when the market is getting it right, essentially, and you have the protectionists, whoever that may be, warp the market to their own advantage. However, in the areas of clean and climate tech, certain chips, not the type that come out of a deep fat fryer, you know, actually microchips and other vital areas, there's simply nowhere near enough supply to change, you know, to save the planet, essentially, as we need to. And what supply there is, is often dangerously concentrated in one geography or even one firm. Now, in that context, there's ample scope for the focused industrial policy to help encourage investment into certain areas, areas that we really need to grow dramatically quickly in order to have a habitable, equitable planet to live on. We shall see, I guess. But we obviously think there is something you can do beyond the lifestyle changes that many rightly advocate. This is you know, that is to be part of the private sector investments pouring into these necessary technological changes and benefit financially from it in the long term. You know, that's what Shaquille is talking about. All of our multi-asset class funds and investments are very much designed with this idea in mind. I'm sorry, it's a long rant. This I was going to something... say beautifully linked together, Will, but okay, um, if you want to call it a long rant. It's you, a long rant. Do. I always have a long rant, as you know. Okay, well, after that long rant, I'd love to end it there. So just want to say thank you very much, Will. Thank you, Skill. Very interesting discussion. And thank you to our listeners. Look forward to joining everyone again next week for another Word on the Street. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.